Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. This is our weekly roundup, where we bring in a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. On today's incredible panel, returning to the roundup is Politicology fan favorite Molly McHugh. Molly is a writer and researcher of Russian influence and information warfare. Her articles have appeared in Politico, Wired, The Washington Post, Lawfare, among many other publications. She's also an adjunct professor at Georgetown University and the lead author of an excellent newsletter called GreatPower.us. Molly, so great to see you again. Thanks for having me on. Also returning to the roundup is the always highly anticipated Mike Madrid. Mike, you're also a fan favorite. (laughs) Mike is a national political strategist our resident expert in demographics and Latino politics, my fellow co-founder of The Lincoln Project. He also lectures on race, class, and partisanship at the University of Southern California. It's so good to see you again, my friend. Always great to be with you guys. On this week's Roundup, we're doing something a little bit different. We're recording on Tuesday this week of Thanksgiving, and you'll hear this on Friday as per usual. But the topics this week are particularly uh, globally focused. We're going to pull back from the domestic horse race stuff, and we're going to talk about the rest of the world. So that includes China's hypersonic missile and Applebaum's piece in the Atlantic about 21st century autocrats the Tigray crisis, and the civil war in Ethiopia. And finally, in our segment for Politicology Plus members, we're going to talk about the growing problem of space junk. If you're not already subscribed, you can head over to politicology.com plus to get the plus segment and join our community. Let's dig in. In July, China conducted a hypersonic weapon test. And they had a technological advance that allows their hypersonic weapons to fire a missile as it approaches its target, traveling at least five times the speed of sound, which no other country has ever done. And according to the Financial Times, Pentagon scientists were caught off guard by the advance. Military experts have been trying to determine both how China mastered the technology and what the purpose of the projectile is. Some believe it's an air-to-air missile, but others think it's designed to destroy missile defense systems. Russia and the U.S. have been working on hypersonic weapons for years, but China's weapons test shows they're significantly more advanced than either the Pentagon or the Kremlin. And last week, a top U.S. Space Force official admitted that the U.S. isn't as advanced as either China or Russia in this department. Molly, this is the first time I think I'm saying U.S. Space Force out loud without like a smirk on my face, <laughs> because when it when, you know, the Trump administration first created uh, this new military branch, it sounded like a joke. It kind of was a joke to a lot of people. And now it seems like maybe it's not a joke anymore. So can you help us understand how dangerous the hypersonic weapons can be, whether the weapons themselves are a big deal and what that could mean? that we're behind both Russia and China, and then sort of place the U.S. Space Force in the context of of this question. 
Yeah, sure. You know, it's funny because the I think it was the way in which Trump announced the Space Force that made it such a smirk worthy uh, event. Um, but this is not to say it's not an important uh, sort of combatant command area, which is why there is now U.S. Space Force. Like we need to think about the stuff more. So it's important that Space Force exists, even if their logo is exactly like Starfleet. It is, so it is, such, it it is, is totally so Starfleet. Starfleet. I think we all know that. And that's fine. That's just fine. But it is that. Um, so I think the hypersonic weapons thing is, uh, you know, I'm not going to say it's not important. Hypersonic weapons, super important. We need to pay attention to this as an area of competition. Uh, the biggest issues being, of course, um, you know, so the big thing during like the Cold War with the Soviet Union was uh, intercontinental ballistic missiles, ICBMs, mm-hmm. where you can sort of shoot something up kind of into space and then it falls back down. Um, and this was the thing that was then evading the current missile defenses and technology to detect things that were incoming that we all had. So everybody sort of panicked, like, oh, God, death could come from the sky and we wouldn't know. And so hypersonic weapons are kind of the new thing that does that because they basically go into orbit. So it's uh, it, it's extremely fast and you have very little warning that these things have been launched or are incoming currently. We're working on the sort of uh, whatever the deflection or detection technologies would be. But we don't have that nearly up to speed yet, nor do we have a timeline of what that would look like. So I think in that whole realm, like this is a significant area of competition, particularly as all of the nuclear treaties kind of break down and no one's really talking about um, arms control in a serious way, certainly not with China at the table. Um, So that's important. But I think that in general, hypersonic weapons, when we're talking about it, it's just kind of part of this giant metaphor that we still, we, the United States, are still not oriented toward the right strategic threats this century. And you've heard me talk about this mm-hmm. a bazillion times. Um, but I think the way that that China and Russia, because Russia also did a, a hypersonic weapons test recently, which was not a gigantic technological advance, but uh, significant in its pacing. They launched from the Arctic, uh, which is another area where we need to have more competition, where we're not paying attention. Um, but I think right now China and Russia are really posturing with their hypersonic programs as part of this giant psyop they constantly run that democracies, uh, especially the United States, are declining powers and their network of things is the rising power in the world. And I think there's sort of you know, three basic points that I think are important for us when looking at this. The first is that like hypersonic missiles aren't really the thing. Like, yes, it's important. Yes, we need to continue to advance in the space, yada, 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 yada. But our like our defeat is not going to come from hypersonic weapons. It's that we continue to ignore that we are, we, the United States are failing to project power diplomatically, militarily, economically, culturally in ways that are allowing us to compete. Like everybody uses great power competition, great power competition, But that is not meeting with China and Russia at summits and trying to hash out treaties that is competing with them in every realm and in every geographical area where they are and having a vision for how to do that. And we do not have that. And it is very clear. And I think when we're talking about dominance in this century, we're still just not oriented toward how we need to be thinking about this. And I think our combatant commanders say this a lot in various areas and realms um, and and sort of where the strategic center is still lacking uh, is up for grabs. But I think right now our foreign policy and defense strategies really need more mobilization from the White House if we're going to get out of this hole. Two uh, is, you know, missiles are always connected to the space program. Hypersonic stuff is obviously kind of a fusion of both. Um, and I think 
you know, for the United States, we really need to understand that us sitting back and thinking we can outsource our space program and thus de facto advances in missile technologies uh, to a bunch of billionaires and kooks um, who are personally interested in this for whatever reason. And I'm not saying there hasn't been significant developments from the private sector. Um, There have been, but we cannot think that state-run programs by China and Russia that have tremendous resources behind them um, will not outcompete our lazy, like, let's put out a tender, let's see what the private sector can, like, this needs to be something where we're focused on as a country. Um, and I think that's kind of the third point is just on on counterintelligence. We've talked about this before on this show with the Chinese. The Chinese have been very aggressive about infiltrating and stealing uh, any useful technology and technological advances um, for their weapons programs for every other area of technology that they're working on. Um, uh, and it's just, this is this has been one where initial developments sort of came from, I think, some of their uh, sophisticated espionage, um, which is now contributing to their own program. So it's just someplace where we need to be way more focused on why China does the things that it does. Uh, so I think those are sort of three big points is like, we're still not competing strategically. We're not focused enough on counterintelligence. Um, and we really need to care about national investments in science development and technology. And for some reason, we just don't. Yeah. Mike, I saw you nodding along there. Chinese leader Xi Jinping has publicly stated the Chinese military is working to achieve parity with the U.S. by 2027 and be the leading global power by 2050. So, you know, with with uh, with everything Molly just offered us as a backdrop, what do you think it could mean, will mean domestically if the U.S. loses its footing as the leading superpower. And and I'll just remind our listeners that Molly's talked uh, before on this podcast about, um, I love the way you characterized it, a, a pincer of isolationism, where we have this increasing tendency to sort of separate from the rest of the world on both the extreme left and the extreme right. And it's becoming less even the extremes, but sort of um, the dominant preference in both parties is to sort of retreat from the world stage. Um, and you know, on the left, not, not our right to interfere and on the right, not our job, not our duty. So they're both sort of animated by different ideas, but they net out at the same place, which is an America that is increasingly withdrawn from the world stage. So, um, yeah. How are you thinking about all that? Well, I mean, well, first, let me say that I thought that was a brilliant assessment that that Molly put forward on on kind of what faces us. Um, And immediately, the reason why I was nodding is because my mind immediately goes to to the the domestic situation, because in her characterization, which I think, again, was was was, you know, spot on on every front. It all points to a sense of declinism domestically. And there is no American alive that hasn't spent the bulk, if not their entirety of their life, where America, the United States of America, has been kind of this hegemonic power, or this dominant world force. And it's the way that we as Americans view the world, and it's the way that we view the world politically. And there's a direct correlation to our military strength and, and the strength of our self, strength of our American character, right? And when that begins to decline, um, and this this is throughout history, whether it's you know the, the Aztecs who were conquered or, or or Russians with the fall of the wall, uh, Confederate soldiers. I mean, the history is replete with examples of a people in decline and how self destructive a society can become. And the truth is, there's a lot of those same indicators now. We're seeing a lot of social affliction amongst Americans, which are really unique 
to to the, to not just globally, but in the Western world, we are seeing signs of self destructiveness. Everything that runs the range from these op- opioid addictions to incredibly high suicide rates. There's this this growing sense of hopelessness. Now, again, while most of that is focused largely kind of on 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 a white non college educated demographic, and we've talked about that a lot. And the response has been to be not just uh, self-destructive, but increasingly socially destructive and attacking our institutions and, and lashing out at the broader society. I think it's entirely feasible to understand that this may also be one of the reactions that we undergo as a country as our, as our you know, hegemonic power declines, as we become a, 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 a multilateral world again. Um, not even necessarily a bilateral world, but multilateral world, where America is not the one dominant, you know, player at the table that is kind of, uh, you know, dictating to the rest of the world how essentially things are going to run. Um, history again ha- has shown us that this this transition can be a little bit easier, right? The 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 British, for example, after World War II, essentially ceding some of that power to the United States, um, where uh, you know America last century was the American century. It's increasingly, I think, apparent that that is not likely to be the case this century. And what that does to our sense of identity um, really concerns me greatly because we're just not constituted mm-hmm. to, to be okay with somebody to, to, to sharing power, right? It's so ingrained in the American psyche going back to, to if not the founding, then, then certainly with you know, westward expansion. That manifest destiny that we have, we have, we have, we have a divine purpose on this planet. A lot of our religion is focused on mm-hmm. on the divinity of this country and and its its rightful place as directing the rest of the world and exporting our values. And in many ways, in some ways, being kind of colonial about that, right? And imposing American mm-hmm. values because they're the highest evolutionary rung on the ladder. And and again, when you start to to move from a number one position to to co-sharing power, or even sliding to number two, or possibly number three, um, that has the potential to be extremely extremely societally destructive. And I think we're starting to see some of those signs domestically already taking place. So before we move on to uh, the the Ann Applebaum piece, which I'm really looking forward to discussing with both of you, I want to talk about one other thing out of China this week, which is the story of Peng Shui. Uh, Peng is a tennis player and former world number one in women's doubles. Earlier in November, she accused a former Chinese vice premier of sexual misconduct in a Weibo post. Um, Her post was deleted within minutes. Searches for her name were blocked in China. The chief executive of the Women's Tennis Association, Steve Simon, was not able to reach her. The Chinese state-run media issued a statement that it attributed to Peng, but Simon has questioned the authenticity of the statement. The text of the email sent to Simon was published by Chinese state media and began with, quote, hello, everyone, this is Peng Shui, end quote, which is, you know, a totally (laughs) normal way to greet someone you know well in an email. Uh, Simon has been clear that the WTA is willing to pull out of China if they aren't able to speak with her um, without anyone else in the room. But the International Olympic Committee has been quiet on the issue, especially with the Winter Olympics in Beijing just a few months away. The WTA signed a 10-year deal agreeing to hold their year-end championships in Shenzhen in 2018, uh, and they described it as a billion-dollar commitment to women's tennis. So, uh, Molly, first, I want uh, I, I want you to you know this is obviously a major international news story because she's a celebrity, right? 
But can you help us understand how authoritarians respond to these types of accusations? And then, Mike, uh, I'd like to know how you're thinking about the pressure that businesses can place on countries like China or not place. Uh, and and we've seen we've seen some of them cave to China in the past. So, Molly, first. Yeah, I mean, this is one data point in many that we've sort of publicly seen of of well-known Chinese, you know, but it can be diplomatic figures, political figures, uh, cultural figures, actresses, sports figures, just disappearing from the internet as if they never existed, uh, which is going to be the normal Chinese way of doing business from now on, I think. And um, I think the the way to understand it from outside is if an internationally known person with relative clout in whatever their area is, and in many cases, these are very wealthy people, they are not, you know, sort of poor paupers, um, if they can be disappeared in either the cyber world or in physical space uh, so easily, what's happening to everybody else in China whenever the government feels like doing whatever they're doing? And I think that's uh, that's sort of the caution for all of us. I think there's a lot of pieces in the story that sort of bring up things that we've talked about before in terms of uh, the economic uh, behemoth in sort of cultural and entertainment and sport that uh, China has become financially and the strings that come with that. Um, and it was interesting in the case, in this case that, that sort of the women's tennis association was willing to be like, well, we'll just peace out of this. Um, but if you look at the dollar amounts compared to the NBA or the Olympics uh, it's minimal. Right. And I think mm-hmm. that's part of why, I mean, yes, te- we're talking a $10 million difference in a, in a competition purse, which is a lot, but not very much in sport terms these days. Um, And it's really interesting to me that I think that's the key factor here, right? Is they could do this if they wanted to, like they could probably replace the sponsorship amounts, their tournaments would be fine. Like tennis isn't big, a big enough thing uh, ultimately that um, they wouldn't survive uh, pissing off China unless China decides to come after them. Um, But other sport things are definitely not willing uh, to make those leaps, uh, particularly the International Olympic Committee, which is, you know, known for its corruption and and sort of side deals with all of these nasty places the Olympics end up being. I personally don't think we should uh, be attending the Olympics in China. Um, there's, it's just too much of an endorsement of all of this. Like, you know, I don't, I don't stand for people being disappeared when, and honestly, what she said was like, not really a thing. Okay. It was kind of a me too statement and I'm not, you know, minimizing what she put up. Uh, uh, but in China, it would have had no effect, right? Like it would not have impacted any of these people. It would not have impacted anybody in power. Like this would have gone nowhere and, and sort of faded out over, over the course of weeks. Uh, and yet this was still the reaction. So we can't endorse that. We can't endorse the Uyghur, uh, disappearances and work camps and, you know, re-education facilities, but we can't endorse a country whose power is built on this. And um, we do every time we show up at the Olympics and wave the flag and say, you know, look how great the opening ceremonies were um, when we know that that, you know, the bones and the blood and the disappearances are are underneath all of what that is. And we just can't. And I think we need to be more clear about all of this. Uh, But no one's really ready because the money, the free money from China is just so much. Mike. Well, look, I think that the statement by Simon, the his actions and what the Women's Tennis Association is doing is is courageous and it's commendable because they're not 
as big as any other organization, right? That this is not a big deal financially, as Molly correctly pointed out, um, compared to the NBA, which is behaving frighteningly. <laughs> you know, th- th- there's going to be an increasing role of not just organizations um, in sports, although that's of, of particular importance, especially here domestically in the way that we view the world, but with corporations, right? Holding up values and what it is that we are willing and not willing to do. And a lot of these multinational corporations um, are going are gonna to have a, a very serious set of decisions to make that will probably not be comfortable. We talked about this and saw this during... Um, the Georgia specials, right, and, and some of the Voting Rights Act that were happening and what Coca-Cola was going to do. And then you start hearing about what Apple's going to do in Texas with some of the abortion changes, abortion law changes. And look, the, 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 that opens up a Pandora's box for a lot of these companies because so many of these companies are profiting off of labor practices that we would never allow here domestically or are dealing with their employee bases in ways that we would never allow here domestically. And, and so at a certain point, there's going to have to be some sort of a national, international consumer standard that the American market is and isn't willing to deal with. What are your values? It's not just about voting rights in Georgia. It's how you're actually making this product um, that I deal with every, every day. And, and I'm not too sure that um, corporations um, are going to care as much as we think that that uh, we, we do, right? Again, it's very uh, we have a very United States centric view of the world where we think that we can just use our market power, where we can use our military power and kind of you know guide or push the world around. And China's not that's that's not the way the Chinese mindset works. They're they're not they're not concerned about that. They're not worried about those type of social pressures. And so uh, corporations are going to be on different sides of this, at least as this unfolds, as it evolves. And I think that's why it's particularly important that we're watching what is happening um, with the WTA in, the, in, this, in, this, in this instance, is you have a smaller player essentially standing up and saying, you know, th- th- this is about our values. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't care if it costs us tens, hundreds of millions of dollars. We want to know that this member, that this player is okay. And we won't rest until that happens. Very, very, again, different than what you're seeing with the NBA, um, where there's this just weird silencing that's going on. And maybe it's not that weird, I guess, when you understand from the international stage, but watching just how NBA players fall into line immediately with very few exceptions. And then you start to understand that a lot of these, you know, Sneaker deals are made based off of you know, labor practices in these countries and, and the huge, huge dollar amounts um, with expansion of, of the sport into China. And you realize very quickly um, that the size of the market is, is um, something that is not going to allow for American kind of belligerence. I don't know if that's the right word, but yeah. our, our normal way of throwing our weight around is not going to work with China and, and corporations are going to play a pivotal role on what, if any, expansion, preservation, and or protection of human rights and democracy itself is going to be, um, be, be you know, part of, 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 of the answer here with whatever it is that, that, that evolves. Okay. I want to talk about this piece in the Atlantic uh, by one of my now favorite writers, thinkers, uh, about authoritarianism, um, 
Ann Applebaum, who's been on the podcast before. Our listeners will be very familiar with her. She wrote this piece uh, for their December issue, for the Atlantic's December issue, called The Bad Guys Are Winning. And it's about the rise of authoritarianism in the 21st century. Anne uses the example of Svetlana Tihanovskaya, who ran for president of Belarus against the dictator Alexander Lukashenko, and highlights that most people have this cartoon image of an autocratic state where there's a bad man at the top and he controls the police and the police threaten people with violence. And she pushes back on that idea, writing, quote, nowadays, autocracies are run not by one bad guy, but by sophisticated networks composed of kleptocratic financial structures, security services, uh, military police, paramilitary groups, surveillance, and professional propagandists. The members of these networks are connected not only within a given country, but among many countries. The corrupt state-controlled companies in one dictatorship do business with corrupt state-controlled companies in another. The propagandists share resources. The troll farms that promote one dictator's propaganda can also be used to promote the propaganda of another. And themes pounding home the same messages about the weakness of democracy and the evil of America. So, you know, I I was fascinated by this piece. I thought it was brilliant. I can't wait to talk about it with you both. But one of the things that came to mind as I was reading this, and Molly, you may disagree with me here, but I, this is just what I thought of. But we've relied on sanctions for so long uh, to punish, you know, bad actors, um, bad regimes. And it seems to me, and Anne was sort of painting this picture, that this reliance on sanctions over time almost uh, incentivizes these bad actors to find new ways of doing business and cooperating with uh, with other people who share their interests. And and that ultimately sort of creates a, a more a sustainable, stable network of bad guys, basically, because all of them have an interest in evading sanctions. And so they're looking for consistent sort of networks to do that through. So um, I'm not I'm not arguing that sanctions created this problem, but it does seem to be sort of a, a phenomenon that is a consequence of the, the 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 regime that we've the sanctions regime that we've that we've relied on for a long time to punish people. So um, I'll lay that at your feet. I want to know what both of you made of this piece. Uh, what were your major takeaways? But maybe you can start there, Molly. Yeah, you know, I did. I wouldn't. I wouldn't view just the sanctions bit as the most important thing or the origin of this. And I think it is important, but I think it's the mindset issue again, right? The issue with sanctions is it's about punishment. We're not doing anything to strategically set a policy or try to like shape outcomes anywhere in the world. We are responding to uh, what someone has already done, usually in a way that we know isn't really going to deter or change behavior, but just it's like the punishment factor. And I'm not minimizing the significance of sanctions in some instances where they have been quite important, but um, it's just, we know they're not achieving what we want. And it's because of what Anne, I think, details very well in her piece, which is the network of bad guys. And um, it's a very sophisticated uh, interweaving of um, you know, financial assets, state assets, military deals, um, but I think the way that she sort of identifies the Syria model, which maybe isn't exactly the right thing, but, you know, if you look over time at Syria, Libya, Venezuela, uh, some of the African uh, uh, instances where Russia and China have been aggressive on intervening on behalf of their guys, um, there is this sort of no questions asked network of bad guys that come to the rescue of the other bad guys who 
agree with them on the idea that, you know, maintaining power and uh, uh, financial control that allows you to maintain that power are the things, the only things that really matter. And yes, the military stuff is a piece of that. And like all these other things are a piece of that. But um, it's this, uh, the kind of network effect of, of all of that counter free world stuff um, that is quite significant, even if it's not fueled by what we view as a coherent ideology um, beyond sort of, you know, self-aggrandizement and self-enrichment. And I think Anne does a really good job of, of, of really pushing at that. Um, and also in the piece, really challenging uh, something, you know, that I've talked about with you a lot, Ron, but this like uh, the coupling in especially the, the mind of the American left of forever wars with democracy promotion, thus making all democracy promotion this terrible, awful thing that we should never be involved in ever, um, is, is, a, is a piece of the mindset that is ruining uh, how we interact with the world and how we view ourselves in the world. Um, so I think both of those things, sort of this idea of the power of the network of these people who do not share ideology or even necessarily goals, but are willing to use common tactics against all the rest of us and their own people and everybody else, you know, and that includes information control, uh, you know, all of these other things we've talked about before. Uh, so that piece and then kind of the and we're not there are really significant. Mike, you were the one who sent me this piece. Actually, you brought it to my attention. Um, so I'm really interested to hear your take on this. Well, I, I think as Paul Krugman would say, autocracy is flattening, right? Ooh. Along with everything else. is what, What's happening is it's becoming scalable because of the network. And it's really a sign of the diminishment of the nation state as an actor, right? And the, the battle last century between you know, loosely defined democracy and kind of authoritarianism was this bilateral conflict where, you know, there was half of the world was for democracy and the other half was, you know, for communism, right? And, and then you come up with these containment theories and, and the domino theories and we start having these, these wars in foreign lands where there, you know, it's the Cold War scenario allowed us to kind of play out these conflicts um, in, in different theaters throughout the world um, as each, each side was trying to pick up different pieces on the chessboard. This century is going to be defined very differently. It's going to be much more transnational. And a lot of these actors are going to be operating, again, I think towards their own aggrandizement and enrichment, as Molly just said, uh, with, with, without the constraints of the nation state, or at least less constraints of the nation state. And it's why I have been saying that the only way democracy as we know it, and, it, and democracy as we know it is not going to survive, it's going to look very different. I mean, that's just the, 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 the pace and, and nature of, of human change. But, but to the extent that we can protect some of these liberal ideas that we have, um, it's going to require you know, transnational alliances with other, with other players. And that doesn't necessarily mean other governments or other, other allies in, in the traditional sense or the way that we've known it or knew it last century. There's going to continue to be conflicts between those elements in, in Western democracies and globally that are pushing for more authoritarian regimes. And there will be increasingly those factions that need to be empowered in authoritarian regimes that are pushing for more liberalized democratic efforts. And, and that will be the struggle. There's not going to be a, a Vietnam where we're you know funding you know one side and the Russians are funding the other side and we're having this proxy war. Um, you know, with, with a conflict in foreign lands. I mean, that, that may pop up in certain instances, but by and large, what's going to be happening is these internal wars in between nation states where the alliances really are 
um, between networks of those that are pushing towards more authoritarian regimes, which we're seeing right now, right? It's it, it's flattening their networking. Their objectives are, are very different than than um, than just a bilateral conflict. Um, what we're but we're also going to see uh, new networks emanate and change. Um, um, with, for democratic efforts. And, and it's why I've been saying in very short order, I believe we're going to start seeing international political parties. We're going to start seeing people working um, transnationally for a certain set of values. And in response to, to what autocrats are doing and corrupt regimes are doing and, and those regimes that are trying to limit and tamp down on individual human rights and the, the, the ability for people to have greater say in their government, the response to that is going to be, again, I think international alliances that are going to be sharing information and, and those that are opposed to this network are going to have to emulate the same strategies if it's going to be successful, um, which I think is a fascinating development, by the way. It's also, like I said, I think it increasingly weakens sort of the, the nation state, but technology is driving so much of this, right? It, it's what's allowing autocrats to have kind of their their, their larger network, but it's also going to allow the forces against them to have a similar network, at least for the time being, until they are clamping down and, and monitoring yeah. everything and sharing information between each other. I love this thesis of yours. Every time you bring it up, it takes on sort of fresh, uh, sort of new thinking. We've, we've been talking about this for a long time, and I and I... I am fascinated by this idea. I think you're I think you're right. Molly, I'm interested to hear what you think about that. But if that is true and 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 sort of our our hope, our only hope of preserving um, you know, our at least you know, America's configuration of democracy here, right, is reliant on transnational alliances. Those alliances are going to have to be rooted in values and principles as opposed to specific, you know, techniques, right? Uh, or or a particular, you know, version of an operating system for democracy, right? Because it's not going to look the same everywhere. So I I wonder, first of all, what do you think about that? And what are the values if 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 we had to distill them, you know, on on one side and on the other side, what are the what are the values that these alliances might be might be built upon that everyone can agree on, um, and and what about eva- what values are on the other side of that equation? Yeah, you know, it's it's. I, I don't think we should should be necessarily ready to cheer the diminishment of the nation state and all of these things, which I don't I, I don't think that's what Mike was saying. But uh, I, you know, it, and just because uh, it. The network that Anne described in her piece is so much what we've talked about in terms of Bannon and these like global networks of political baddies, right? Which is also very much what Mike was just talking about. Um, uh, but the uh, the absence of the nation state in having a role in determining these things then becomes a place where people like Mark Zuckerberg can have so much more influence because of of the inherent power that they control where guys like Steve Bannon who just really want to be in there and are going to figure out a way to put that together can have a lot more influence and control. Um, And so I think uh, Mike's right to say, if we actually care about these things that we say that we care about, it would be real nice if some people would get together and make something that looks like a force trying to fight for those things in the world. Um, And I think, Partially, it is this like 20th century relic of we're used to there being this international alliance of of states and actors who are engaged in defending these values who just aren't doing it the same way anymore. So how do we fill that space if they're not going to? Like if the United States of America is actually not going to be there when it needs to be, uh, 
what's going to be there to do this thing? And I think we need to answer that question because three successive administrations have not tried to answer that question in a way that I find convincing. Um, and against, uh, you know, rising powers and alliances of autocratic forces um, that really stand against everything we think we are in history and the changes that we think are immutable in terms of what the birth of the United States of America meant, uh, which now look pretty mutable. Um, and I think the, the absolute baseline of it just goes down to individual lives matter and should have a say in how they are governed uh, in sort of a transparent and uh, impactful way. Um, and that's the, the core of what, uh, you know, American democracy was born out of. Granted, it took some time to evolve all the way toward that. Um, but that was the core of it, was the idea that every person actually matters in a system. Um, and that is what is very absent from the Russian and Chinese uh, and Iranian and, and in many cases, even like the Indian concepts of power, um, this idea that individuals matter. And I think that's the thing we need to figure out how to defend the most because um, we don't want a world where the kooky billionaires get to set the rules or the kooky alliances of the bad guys get to set the rules um, with no ability for the common man, however you want to define that, to have any say in how that is determining uh, what, you know, what their future is going to look like and their ability to act within that system. Uh, and that's what we're moving toward right now. And I just think people are blind to it, uh, whether you're talking about the corporate level, the national level, the transnational level, uh, the within your own country level, um, the significance of the individual is in decline and that needs to be buffeted against. That is so fascinating. And I, I want to just tease that out a little bit more because I, I think I totally agree with you, whether it is, um, big tech organizations that are mining data out of our pockets every minute, um, you know, largely yes, fine with consent, but not with really informed consent. Um, or organizations, governmental or non-governmental, um, it seems to me that the that the defining question is whether or not the individual, whether or not organizations respect individuals as sovereign first before they take uh, bits of that sovereignty in order to you know create some collective good. Um, Mike, we talked a little bit about privacy potentially being the defining principle here or the organizing principle, privacy and or individual sovereignty, which is, you know, the United States has a a government um, that rests on the consent of the governed, right? That is the only reason that it exists. Individuals decide collectively that we need to give up a little bit of our sovereignty in order to participate in this thing we call society. And, but, but the question is not how much does government get to take? It is how much are individuals willing collectively to give up in exchange for that? Because ultimately the individual is sovereign. And I think that is the principle, Molly, you're, you're, you're talking about. Um, but on the other side of that, and by the way, feel free to jump in and disagree with me, but I, but I, but I seem, I, I think that's where we're shaking out here. Um, on the other side is uh, what Anne wrote about the dictator's learning curve, where, for example, Belarus used the techniques that Russia had uh, used to repress crowds in Russia. Um, They were seamlessly transferred to Belarus along with the personnel who knew how to deploy them. Russian state television, you know, journalists, I put journalists in air quotes, replaced the Belarusian journalists who went on strike. Russian police supplemented the Belarusian police. So how should we be thinking about not just the export of techniques from a developed autocracy 
but the actual personnel who know how to build and maintain an autocratic state. And, you know, Mike, maybe you should take this one first because you and I will be very familiar with U.S. US organizations that are very practiced and skilled in helping to develop democracies around the world. The IRI is one of them, the International Republican Institute. I know you know them well. Um, uh, but But it seems to me that they now have a, a, an adversarial correlate in terms of an organization working to not just advance an ideology, but actually uh, produce a, 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 a sort of cohort of professionals, we can call them, who are skilled in the techniques of autocracy. Well, I look, I think one of the advantages that we have as kind of the longest standing democracy in the world is we have developed a pretty robust political consulting industrial complex. <laughs> you know, we, we do have some of the most skilled, you know, campaigners and operatives in the world, at least in the way that a, you know, quote unquote, free and fair election system w- might work. And, and for many years, since, since at least the, the mid 80s, we have been, you know, there are organizations out there that do work with political parties um, in the in the developing world and 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 beyond to kind of practice and train elected officials and the formation of political parties. And some of this has been a little bit cloak and dagger, right? I mean, obviously there's been, you know, our government has been doing some 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 subversive stuff for many, many years. We're not saying anything that we, we don't all know. I mean, we don't know the, the tactics, obviously, that they all employ, but but we have been interfering in people's democracies and in their governments for for a very, very, very long time. I mean, I'm hoping I'm I'm hoping nobody is shocked to hear that, you know, that that is happening. But it is also important to understand. That you know what we have learned in that process is that there's there's there are, there are cultural challenges, right? The the belief that somehow we could go into a place like uh, Iraq or Afghanistan and and help overthrow the regime, and then suddenly people would pick up democracy the next day and kind of run with it, and 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 that was the natural order of things, has pr- been proven false time and time and time again, going back to at least you know the, the Philippines and the Spanish American War. You can't import or export rather these these cultural values and impose them onto people and expect that democracy is naturally going to take hold. We are in a pretty significant minority, not just in the United States, but in the Western world with the idea that power emanates from the individual, right? That's the American experiment, right? It was the first time that that was really kind of looked at as saying, hey, this is the way we're going to run government. This is the way that power is derived and it comes from the consent of the governed. That isn't a deep minority in the world. And so finding, finding allies in places like India, uh, finding China, Russia, these, these, this is not the, cultural, the dominant cultural mindset of, of these places that are going to be critical and key allies. So yes, we can export some of the talent that we have in terms of going out and, and training people and involving ourselves in other elections and pushing back against some of these um, you know, well-established techniques that authoritarians use. We, can, we have been doing that. We can absolutely do that. The question is, how effective is that going to be, right? When, when you may or may not even have a majority of the, of the populace where you're trying to impose these values um, agreeing with you. I mean, that's kind of the that's kind of the, the the one of the many lessons that we learned in the, in the war we just pulled out of in Afghanistan. Right? Is is there's only so much that you can have um, a population behind you. It's obviously much more complicated than that. But to to suggest that somehow there was a, there was you know freedom fighters that were looking to build kind of an American style liberal democracy is not accurate. That's 
it's not happening. It's not happening in most parts of the world. So in many ways, I think we have a, 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 a you know, very steep hill to climb in terms of trying to defend what we believe um, is individual sovereignty, as you as you just correctly pointed out, and and sort of exporting these values in order to protect our own here, while these um, autocratic networks are developing. It's it's a very precarious time um, in terms of the idea of of individualism um, being the source of of government power. And I think, again, it's going to be one of the defining features of, of this century. Yeah. Molly, why don't you round out this segment for us? Yeah, I mean, some of this we've talked about before, and I will always repeat it. But it's just, I think, the, the inherent mistake of believing that people don't want better than what they have has like hamstrung how we act a lot of places. Um, there are people fighting for more individual rights in their countries in a lot of places where we haven't shown up to help them or we've deliberately not worked with them because we decided it really wasn't our thing. And I mean, there's 60,000 Afghans who died fighting for what we said they should have. And uh, we keep discounting that. And I'm not really sure why we do. Uh, so no, there wasn't like, you know, a, a group of Sam Adamses, you know, trouncing through the streets of Kabul trying to build an American style democracy in Afghanistan. But there were a lot of people trying to build a country that was representative, that would have been able to hold together on its own without all this intervention of foreign power stuff over and over and over again. Um, and uh, we've missed opportunities to build that in other places. We've missed it through the Arab Spring, where we were entirely absent. We've missed it through uh, a number of things that come afterward where we all bemoan the decline of, of democracy or the, the decline of the rise of democracy that we saw in the last century. Um, and it's because we're not there. Uh, and like any, like the, all the NED structures, IRA, NDI, whatever, like they're out there, they're still doing the things, but they're not doing it in the way they used to. I think there really needs to be a big refresher. There's a lot of new leadership and money coming into these organizations, and I really hope it makes a difference. Um, but we don't take sides, right? We do these trainings and our metrics are, well, we did the trainings and who really cares at the end of the day when you have Putin showing up with his entire military to keep Assad in power and to keep Maduro in power. And when you have this new Wagner model, like, yeah, it's really great. We have American political consultants that are willing to go do polling for the Albanians, but you know, we're not sending a Wagner style turnkey solution for maintaining power to other countries. I'm not, I'm also not saying that that's what we should be doing, but we need to understand the significance of what that is. It's not just mercenaries. If you look at even just the central African Republic version of this, where they send a small security presence to keep someone in power to oversee the extraction of resources, to, to, to raise the money, to pay themselves, to keep the guy in power, and the information control that keeps all of that in place. Like, this is a really sophisticated model that is extremely small for keeping an entire country under the control of a thing. And why haven't we looked at that and understood why it's important when we now see that happening in Mali and other countries where we're just not, like, engaged in understanding how significant these changes have been? So I think there are people fighting for these things in different ways. And no, it's not going to look like our revolution or our history or our model of democracy. But the idea that people do not want representative, inclusive governance is wrong. Um, and every time we say, oh, they're not ready, the Arabs can't have this, the Africans can't do this, the Latin Americans aren't sophisticated enough for this, we're missing the chance to have our ideas be significant in the world in the way that they once were. 
Um, and I just think we need to constantly challenge ourselves when we find ourselves being lazy about that idea. All right, let's talk about Ethiopia. Earlier this month, the Ethiopian civil war in Tigray marked its one-year anniversary. The main rebel group fighting the government is the Tigray People's Liberation Front, or the TPLF. They are a guerrilla force turned political party that claims to represent the Tigray minority in the north of Ethiopia. They ruled the country for nearly three decades after unseating a brutal communist government in 1991. And TPLF created their own repressive regime that marginalized the larger Amhara and Oromo ethnic groups in Ethiopia. And resentment among the Amhara and Oromo helped to bring Abiy Ahmed to power as the prime minister in 2018. Abiy sought to move Ethiopia away from the ethnic federalism and toward a more unified national identity. He even won the Nobel Peace Prize uh, for the peace agreement with Eritrea. The political dispute between the Ethiopian government and the TPLF erupted after Abiy blamed the Tigrayans for an attack on a national military base. Abiy sent troops into Tigray and launched bombing raids near the regional capital. Tigrayan forces responded by firing missiles into Eritrea, which had joined the fighting on the side of the Ethiopian government. After that, Abiy blocked communications and restricted aid to the region. And since then, internet blackouts and restrictions on foreign observers and reporters have made it harder to get information out of the country. At first, the government appeared to be winning, but after regrouping, the rebels launched an offensive in June, recapturing the regional capital and moving further south. And recently, rebel forces have seized strategic towns along a highway between Addis Ababa, the capital, and a strategic port. Early this month, the TPLF announced it had linked up with the Oromo Liberation Army, a separatist group from the Oromo region. The U.S. and the U.K. have warned their citizens to leave the country as soon as possible. President Biden announced that his administration would revoke longstanding trade benefits for Ethiopia. Aid agencies have warned that Tigray is on the brink of large-scale famine, and according to the U.N., aid hasn't entered the region for weeks. In early November, the U.N. said that Ethiopian authorities detained scores of truck drivers, uh, delivery aid for organizations and other agencies. Uh, and the conflict has displaced hundreds of thousands of people in Ethiopia and across the southern border of Sudan. The UN and Ethiopia's Human Rights Commission released a report earlier this month finding that all sides had committed rights violations, quote, some of which may amount to war crimes and crimes against humanity. We also saw some Ethiopian voters in Virginia, who identified as Democrats and consistently voted for Democrats, uh, decided to vote for Glenn Youngkin because of how the Biden administration has handled the conflict in Ethiopia. And they're calling themselves Ethiopian Americans in Virginia. Those involved in the effort are supporters of Ethiopian Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed, and they say that the sanctions the U.S. placed on Ethiopia and the cutting of trade benefits effectively empowers the TPLF. <sighs> Mali, Mali, the conflict has created tension and fears about the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam. Um, there, there's so much to talk about here. And, um, you know, you mentioned to something to me uh, yesterday when we were talking about this, about potentially seeing the first war over water um, play out in Ethiopia. But the broader picture is <laughs> we only seem to pay attention to Africa once in a while. And even then it's fleeting. And I wonder if you can frame this discussion 
for us with sort of the history of U.S. engagement in or disengagement in in Africa and um, and what that means. Yeah, I mean, there's so, 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 so much in there, right, that is almost impossible to dig through in any in any reasonable human amount of time. Um, I think for the purposes of, I think, your audience and the people who listen to you and all of that you bring to them uh, every week, uh, I think there's a couple of important things here. Um, on, on the U.S. approach to Africa, you know... It, the, there was a sort of whole Cold War era where everything was like, those are our guys, these are their guys, we're on this side, they're on that side. That then kind of rolled straight on into the 90s and, and early 2000s, which was everything was defined by anti-communism, right? And it's how you ended up with guys like Paul Manafort working for these ridiculous, terrible African dictators, because they could justify it by saying, oh, that was the anti-communist force, as the TPLF was at some point as well. Um, uh, so we can work with them because they were the anti-communists, even though they are now like dictatorial creeps. Right. Um, so there was like everything, there was the era when everything was framed in pro or anti-communism terms that kind of has now rolled into the era of everything is defined by pro or anti-counterterrorism terms because we, we can't really figure out how else to form our relationships in Africa. And there was this little window in between that was actually great which was when the Bush administration, uh, George W. Bush, was uh, in power uh, in the United States, where they really tried to redefine um, how the U.S. was interacting with Africa and how we incentivized our relationships there, uh, both in terms of security and development and economic um, aid, um, through organizations like the MCC, the Millennium Challenge Corporation, and initiatives like um, PEPFAR, the presidential blah, blah, blah on AIDS stuff, um, where both of these things were designed to give better aid to countries that were using it transparently and well and who could meet certain metrics on democracy and reforms in their countries. Uh, so incentivizing moves toward good governance in Africa, right? And that was a really good, a really good era for how we were interacting with the continent um, that kind of fell apart uh, in the Obama years because all of those things were kind of disassembled because they were relics of the Bush administration, everything of which must have been bad. Um, but I think this is the, we, we don't have a consistent approach to Africa, African partners. Some are framed entirely by security. Some are framed entirely by economic interests, depending on what country, where we are, what's going on. Those shift constantly. They're redefined constantly. We'll build an entire military base and then pull all the guys out of it a year later. Um, and the inconsistency makes it, uh, difficult for us to have the kind of sustained significant presence we should have in most of these places. And I think the network of baddies that we've been talking about in the previous two segments um, are really good about showing up in those gaps where we should be there, we aren't, we step out, we're critical of something, whatever. They show up on the other side and provide the aid and support to the thing, uh, whatever the thing is, um, in a way that um, really changes the balance of, of outcomes. Um, and I think we've seen that significantly in Ethiopia. So why should we care about Ethiopia, the United States of America? It's part of this bigger question of the Horn of Africa, as it is called, uh, security positioning, which is significant for us in terms of reach into the Middle East, control of access to the Mediterranean, how we view, you know, moving outward toward the Indian Ocean and um, uh, parts Asia. Um, we need to be there. We have a lot of stuff invested there. Um, but Russia and China have been really aggressive about forming their own basing uh, rights and initiatives, uh, patrolling, uh, you know, gaining access to these places as well. 
Uh, and we're a little bit stodgy about how we're doing our stuff there. And we really need to be more on the balls of our feet. Um, so we need to care. And we have a lot of money invested in caring um, and caring about the broader security environment of the region thus becomes a piece of this. Um, and I think, um, again, we're sort of behind on understanding how other uh, international actors, other domestic uh, in the region uh, presences are very focused on disrupting what is there, uh, which leaves us in the lurch time and time again. So um, we need this kind of what is defining our relationships on the continent, in sub-Saharan Africa at least, uh, how can we be more consistent in that approach, particularly on the security front? Um, and when there are these things that come up, how can we ensure that we have a better presence uh, so people aren't running to Moscow to have these conflicts resolved, but they're still engaged in listening to what the United States has to say um, and in letting us have a diplomatic role? Um, but how are we helping to shape these outcomes? And I think right now it seems like we're not. Uh, I think the view of this particular administration from, from people that I've talked to uh, in, 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 who work on different African issues tends to be that the Biden administration has people they know and they're like supporting the people they know, but that is not that does not a policy make. Um, uh, I think you can debate that one way or the other, but there is this like, what is the consistent values-based approach that we're using to engagement on the continent and how do we maintain it over time that we've just sucked at as a country and we really need to get better uh, about it. Mike, one of the reasons uh, we're talking about this today and to the extent that it's being covered in US news media is because there has been this um, significant demonstration by Ethiopian Americans in Virginia, uh, in particular, um, you know, a, a, a banding together to send a message by voting for Glenn Youngkin over, over, um, uh, Terry McAuliffe. Um, now Ethiopians are historically democratic, um, voting bloc. Um, but what I want you to think about sort of out loud with me is in the, in, in, we talked earlier about how, um, you know, to use Molly's pincer um, uh, metaphor again, the increasing, um, you know, preference of Americans on both sides of the aisle to withdraw from the world stage, um, anti-interventionism. I wonder if you think we might see um, more demonstrations by ethnic minorities in the United States drawing attention to U.S. foreign policy. Um, as, as you know, many, uh, I, I don't, maybe this breaks down by, by race and class. I don't know, but could that potentially be a counterbalance? And I'm thinking of, you know, Cubans in Florida and Puerto Ricans, uh, Mexican Americans in California. How do you think about the way those, um, those ethnic, ethnic minorities and the immigrant community may begin to draw attention to UN to US foreign policy that might that might push back against the isolationist tendencies. Well, first let me say this has probably been the best hour that I've had talking geopolitics <laughs> since I was an undergraduate at Georgetown University. So Molly, thank you for taking me back to those days of uh, f free un uh, advertisement for 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 Georgetown. Is this if you're like this conversation, this is what you get to do at the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown. So uh, get your applications in now. I, I, I love talking out loud with you guys, thinking out loud with you guys. This is fantastic. Yeah. So, 
look, there, there are really two, arguably three um, discernible immigrant groups that have come to the United States of America in the last couple centuries that have voted Republican um, from, from when they got to the to our shores. Those are the Cuban Americans uh, in Florida, largely Miami Dade, right? In South Florida. Um, the other were the Vietnamese, uh, it, largely in Orange County in California. And the reason why is they were fleeing communism. They were fleeing, they were fleeing communist regimes, right? They were fleeing an oppressive regimes. And they were here, they were emigrated, they were political emigrates first and foremost. And that is, but uh, you're seeing some of that with the diaspora now in, 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 in with the Ethiopians in, in Virginia, right? They came here, they, they voted on a traditional immigrant trajectory. They're voting with the Democratic Party. Something happens in the homeland, which is uh, with 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 uh, political regimes, and they react by voting for or against the, our country's foreign policy dictate as it relates to that. But but these are very these, these are exceptions. These are exceptions. Uh, the, the vast majority of immigrants um, that are coming now and have for the past few decades vote eerily similar to what happened to immigrant groups back, you know, in 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 the early 1900s um, at Ellis Island in New York, which is there's kind of this urban machinery which they immediately sort of kind of. Uh, fall in line to. They vote with the Democratic Party um, as first-generation uh, emigres. They're here for economic reasons as they start to attain economic mobility, and they begin to acculturate into the kind of dominant society. They then start to move uh, uh, and start balancing out and take on the overall characteristics of the mainstream electorate. Okay, That's the traditional trajectory. Mm-hmm. But what you are suggesting, I think, is 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 is, is potentially impactful but it would require two things. First, it requires sort of this, this mass migration that we would allow in numbers sufficient to affect our country um, um, from, from these politically unstable regions, which we have not shown a strong proclivity to do. We don't want any immigrants, frankly, at this point right now. Immigration's been declining, and we're still talking about building walls and making sure that people aren't coming here, even though they may be political refugees. And then the second, and this is a very important metric too, they need to really be, to be discernible and effective, they really do need to be in a geographically important area um, in a state that matters, which is increasingly becoming you know, l- less and less likely. So um, the, the potential for what you're saying exists, but the potential for it to be recognized on our own um, political landscape is, is probably de minimis. Um, I do believe that people um, are going to vote based off of foreign policy, especially you know, recent emigres on the way the United States government deals with um, their, 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 the motherland, the fatherland, the country of origin. But I, that's not a terribly new dynamic in our country's history either. I don't see anything necessarily transformative happening as a result of that, frankly, because of the two reasons I mentioned. One is they have to come in enough numbers to actually have an, a discernible impact and the second is they have to be geographically, physically located in an area that is uh, sensitive enough to have the politicians listen. Well, if I could yep. maybe just two finger what Mike is saying, and I agree with everything he just yep. said in terms of, of actual voting. Um, uh, it, the thing about foreign policy is Americans don't vote on it. They never have. It's not the thing that defines right. it or drives elections. We all know this. But American diaspora groups, like the you know the groups of whoever who come here are extremely significant in many cases in shaping American views of a thing, a conflict, a country, 
uh, and in de facto defining American foreign policy, either through Congress or through administrations um, in a lot of ways that I think uh, there's good examples of. I mean, uh, if in the last, uh, I think it was last year, I've totally lost track of time, but, you know, the United States finally acknowledged, for example, the Armenian genocide of 100 years ago by Turkey against the Armenian population. Um, this was a, an initiative entirely driven by Armenian diaspora communities, you know, the people who fled the, the atrocities, who went out into the world. There's a ton in the United States. There's a ton in Europe um, who have been pushing for this for a long time. Uh, and while on that particular historical issue, this was a significant acknowledgement, those diaspora groups have also been shaping perceptions in the countries where they're very significant of the, the domestic current uh, political situation in Armenia, which are kind of detached from reality, truthfully, because those groups are not there. They're here and not in Armenia. Uh, and they have helped define foreign policy in, in a lot of senses. So I think there are, because foreign policy is not, you know, it's a thing that that is uh, done by very small groups of people in the United States, um, diaspora communities can have a very significant uh, impact on um on how foreign policy is made. Look at the Iraqi diaspora, which helped push forever for the U.S. intervention in Iraq and helped define how we went about the Iraq war. Uh, the Iranian-American community has been significant forever in pushing greater American uh, involvement in um, democratic uprisings or not in Iran. So I, I do think there is this factor of organization. Like some of these groups are better than others at... Um, uh, putting together information and educational campaigns that target Congress, that target uh, the internet, that target, you know, that, that put out stories that sort of capture the American mind one way or the other. Um, and these can be significant in shaping foreign policy. So I think that's important, but I do not think that translates directly to, right. you know, voting or, or shifting who or, who was elected or not in significant ways. But foreign policy is this weird amoeba. Yeah, that's an important distinction. Now that we are up to speed on a few of the biggest stories internationally this week, <laughs> let's talk about what we are watching. This has been a nice roundup, right? Without the horse race stuff. It's a, it's a good, I like this. Mike, what are you keeping your eye on? Well, I mean, to take a 180 degree turn, I'm, I'm focused on kind of the comments that Larry Hogan um, and Sununu, Governor Sununu uh, from New Hampshire are making um, against Donald Trump. Um, it comes on the same week as, you know, Chris Christie kind of has been waffling, <laughs> depending on which program he's on and selling his book. He's either, you know, anti-Trump or pro-Trump. But these are further signs that um, as the lane is opening up, especially in the post-Virginia, post-New Jersey elections, when there was some distancing by uh, Youngkin, that um, the lane, the anti-Trump lane politically, I'm not saying ideologically or that there's a resurgence of conservatism against populism, but the anti-Trump lane is being tested. It's being pushed to see how wide and how big it is. Uh, Larry Hogan, again, governor of Maryland, Republican governor of Maryland, in the most direct anti-Trump comments so far, uh, was speaking at the Republican Governors Association when he was asked because Donald Trump endorsed a um, non-Hogan candidate in Maryland, and, and Hogan's response was very simple, which is, I ran 33 points ahead of Donald Trump. I'm not worried about what the guy says. Um, you know, he lost by 45 points in my state. Um, and, and Hogan has no fear of, of, of Donald, Donald Trump. And I think that as we are starting to see current electeds, though they're maybe vacating, vacating office, standing up, it's a small but important change 
in sort of the attitude towards Donald Trump and the Republican Party. Am I suggesting that this is the piece that's going to break the dam and finally the fever will break? No, I'm not. But to suggest that it's not happening at a time when, you know, Jonah Goldberg uh, and Steve Hayes leave National Review to the, 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 the foremost conservative minds in, in American politics have left Fox News because of their disagreements with Tucker Carlson and this populist messaging that's going on that is inciting violence. These are very significant developments in the same week. And so there is you are, uh, there is a breaking away from people who have had this ostrich-like approach by sticking their head in the sand and pretending that this stuff is not happening. There is more, um, I don't know if courage is the right word, but as the, lane, the anti-Trump lane is opening up, um, it's important to see uh, people stepping into that lane. I don't know how long it will last, but it is a unique development that I have seen in Republican politics over the course of the last four or five years. Yeah, we're going to see about uh, inviting Jonah and Stephen on the show to talk about that. That'd be great. Molly, what are you keeping your eye on? Well, first, I just want to say I really hope Mike is right that there's new energy and mobilization in the anti-Trump conservative lane because, boy, do we need it. But, um, you know, I think the thing that I'm watching right now, and we've touched on some of it, actually, as we typically do when talking on this program, but... uh, is the everything sucks everywhere and where are we question. But if you're following even just front page headlines of crap happening in the world right now, uh, significant Russian military buildup against Ukraine, significant movements in a number of other places, uh, Belarus situation still sucks, lots of stuff happening on Russia's Western border, uh, the whole region around Russia pretty unstable. Uh, But there's like crap happening everywhere. And it feels like we don't really have much to say about that. And I'm very uh, interested in why that is, <laughs> why that is, and when we're going to show up. Um, I'm I'm worried about the backfootedness of American foreign policy right now, and I think related to the stuff we just talked about, a good example is um, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken just came back from uh, an African trip that made basically no news. There were a few little statements that came out of it, um, and while we're there doing these no news trips. Uh, you know, Russia signed like two more military agreements with the most significant military powers on the continent. And it's just like, why are we not seeing this in the same way? Um, so I just, again, there's this hole in like, we keep talking about the competition that's happening in the century, but we are not competing. Yeah. Uh, and I would really like to start seeing uh, some sense that we're trying to fill that hole. Here, here. I mean, I, yeah, there's a, I have lots of thoughts on that, but not, not for the look ahead. No, <laughs> but follow uh, maybe, those stories. Cause there's a lot follow, happening. Follow Even just if you look stories, at headlines, man. you realize yeah. there's a lot going on in the world and we are just not, we're yeah. not a part of the conversation on it most of the time. Yeah. And that really should be a concern. Or as Anne put it, the bad guys are winning. Bad guys are winning. Absolutely. <sighs> Come on, good guys. Let's go. <laughs> Molly, uh, Mike, before we head to the after party, AKA Politicology Plus, where can everybody find you on the internet? Molly? Um, on Twitter at Molly McHugh uh, or my newsletter, greatpower.us. Highly, highly recommend greatpower.us. Mike? Uh, follow me on Twitter at Madrid underscore Mike. And I'm at Ron Steslow on Twitter. 
thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening today. You can support the show by joining the growing, thriving community of Politicology Plus members and gain access to hours of special content designed to help you think like a political strategist and look further down the road than everyone else and understand the forces and figures shaping the fight for democracy. You can unlock this premium content at politicology.com slash plus. If you have any questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. Even if we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.